Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast. My guest today is Sharifa Nadira and she is the co-founder of Paperweight Studio and author of Recalling Forgotten Tastes. Her studio is a bespoke stationery brand that shines a light on flora and fauna that are unique to our region, while her book is an illustrative collection of edible indigenous plants, which sheds light on the traditional culinary practices by the Orang Asli communities in Peninsula Malaysia. Hey, hey Sharifa. Hi. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. I'm really excited to know about your backstory and how you got started <laughs> with all of this. So maybe let's chat first about paperweight because it's something that I'm very curious about because it takes such a unique angle. So I read online that you guys started by producing uh, money packets. Yeah, it, it all started with uh, a really small collaboration with me and my partner. So she's a product designer and she does really beautiful illustrations. So at the time I was working in 2017. So we were just like, okay, let's do something <laughs> together. And yeah, we decided to just uh, design money packets and they, 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 they were sold out like mm-hmm. for the first you and we yeah. were so happy and yeah we just we thought like we could do something mm. out of this yeah. what do you think accounted for the popularity was it the design you know that was completely unique that has not been done in malaysia before uh i think at that time specifically there were not much uh there were not many designers who were experimenting with um local elements mm. i could say but um so i think that's that's why people were like okay this is something different and we were we were like uh showcasing local flowers um i mean it was it was really floral at first <laughs> and it sort of grew <laughs> i was looking at your work and um, i saw this image I mean, your illustration of an Ixora. And it was something that mm. I grew up um, seeing around my neighborhood. But, you know, no one really champions these flowers. You know, everyone <laughs> thinks of them as so common. I feel that the trend in Singapore is like hydrangeas, eucalyptus, things like that. So why did you guys choose to showcase these flowers? I guess it's because of, because of that very idea. Like people are just so used to like non-native plants or flowers that we're not like familiar with our own uh, varieties so it was a really good opportunity for us to tap into and for myself i do a lot of watercolor Mm. and my partner does a lot of really beautiful illustrations such as the ixora that you saw Mm. um yeah i mean we always try to inject a sense of like familiarity and nostalgia. Mm. And, you know, like what did you grow up looking at? You know, like, what plants did you play with when you were little? And uh, yeah, like food, the food, the plants that we eat, uh, the plants that my, our mothers use in our cooking, you know, mm. things like that. Yeah, I think it's so great. Mm. And I feel that a lot of local flowers are actually very photogenic or like, you know, you know, they lend themselves very well to illustrations. Like one exactly. of 
one of my favorite flowers is the ginger flower, you know, because when it opens up, it's so beautiful. Yeah, no wonder it's called the torch flower. It's, it's, it's like it beams in the forest. It's like, okay, that's the first thing you see yeah. when it blooms, right? So, yeah, I mean... <laughs> to be honest, I've never seen it in a forest. I've only seen it. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in Singapore, it's, we have um, all these natural resources. I mean, uh, for example, here, la, it's, it's quite common because yeah. it's a wild is a wild plant so uh, it's quite common to be seen in forest and for you was that a journey of learning about all these um local flora and fauna when you were illustrating for the for the money packets um or was it something that you were already familiar with um prior to the paperweight studio um, I was already like leaning towards uh, botanical drawings and botanical mm. paintings and but at one point it just you know struck me to do more research and to just learn more about our local ecology because mm. there's honestly there's so much that we can learn from mm. just from our own backyard yeah exactly. <laughs> there's so many yeah there's so many things that we overlook you know for example things that you mentioned in your book um some of the plants are native here and people don't even know that <laughs> Mm -hmm. So, for Paper Studio, we try to illustrate more plants that are endemic to our country or this side of the world at least. Mm -hmm. And um, to sort of educate people as well along the way. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think eventually you guys went into a broader range of products like wedding invites and um, yeah. stuff for corporate clients. So, you know, in the process, I, I think your repertoire kind of expanded to include different kinds of cultural motifs. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting. I saw, I think there was a, like a crane kind of design or was it clouds? I can't remember exactly what, what it was, but I was like, oh my God, that is so beautiful, you know? And it's so culturally yeah. diverse, you. your, your repertoire. So was it a process of learning about the different cultures through this work? Definitely. Um, for every project, we we always just find ourselves to you know do more research on the patterns and motifs uh, associated to a certain culture. For example, the one that you saw is uh, Japanese creams. We did for a Japanese company, so they wanted something like different, something to portray their. Uh, culture um, so that's why I, I was like opting towards the uh, the traditional painting method and mm. also the crane uh, which is which is their symbol of um, prosperity longevity so it was a good opportunity for us to to experiment with something different because it's a it's a totally different culture but also still asian <laughs> yeah so yeah we had fun doing that yeah it looked beautiful what were some of the motives that you uh feel are your favorites through the process of working with uh working at paperweight um 
I really love Peranakan movies. Oh my gosh. They are just so beautiful, so intricate, and most of all, uh, so colorful, <laughs> which is um, what I love. Um, for my partner, she loves uh, experimenting with like Malay uh, traditional patterns, like the cut um, designs. Uh, I don't know if you know, the cut is like um, the gold embroidered pillows. Mm. So those are some of the motifs that we play around with. Um, the batik motifs, we've done that. Um, yeah, like. Uh, the latest one that we experimented with is uh, Kebaya, the, the Sulaman Kebaya for our latest uh, Angkor packets. So for Chinese, I feel that it's very straightforward. As long as it's red, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but what about for Malay money packets? I guess we have a affinity to the colour green, mm. but that really does not constrict us to do everything in green lah, but we, we, we try to experiment and explore as much as we can for mm. every collection which mm. we come out every single year um yeah i mean we, we really try to push the boundaries every time lah. are there any Sorry? rules that can't be broken when making a malay mm. money packet not not really no i don't think so we we, we don't really like put much emphasis on that because I mean the culture of giving ampo is from Chinese culture so <laughs> uh, we there, I don't think there's any constrictions yeah it's so interesting that was actually something <laughs> that I only realized recently um, mm -hmm. that it was I mean it's a custom that is uh, borrowed from the Chinese but yeah I, I always thought that that this culture of giving money during Hari Raya is very traditional right but i didn't know that traditionally it wasn't placed in money packets or was it no uh, i i don't think we we had that culture of giving money specifically perhaps like giving food is normal uh bringing in bringing like uh, small gifts of food when we visit people's houses is normal but I don't think giving money was a custom. Oh, prior. until recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until like when the merging of cultures came mm -hmm. to be in Malaysia. Mm. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> I never knew. So but, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, to put it into context, like even religion-wise, there's no, there's no custom in giving money. So think is purely. <laughs> Uh, borrow or uh, borrowing from the Chinese culture. Mm. Yeah. And I was wondering, as an artist who deals with so many different cultures in your work, does the does the phrase cultural appropriation ever bother you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we try not to delve into that so much because so far we've uh, only like done projects for clients, so it's. It's for the clients, not for ourselves. Like for example, for Chinese New Year, Ampo packets. We we collaborate with uh, with a Chinese friend of ours, and um, for like yeah, we we really try to focus on Raya packets 
which mm-hmm. is closer to our culture. Um, yeah, I mean, even for Peranakan style motifs, they are they are already merging with Malay culture. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think it's so interesting <laughs> your perspective because even though Singapore and Malaysia are so close, I feel like the yeah. cultures are so different. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Because I have a very close Malaysian friend and I just went to his house yesterday for, for dinner. And he uh-huh. was telling me about how as a Chinese, he feels very uncomfortable in Malaysia. And uh, I oh. think in Singapore is the reverse, right? Because you have Chinese yeah. population uh, dom- uh, predominantly and there's a very small Malay population that feels like... Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, repression and discrimination in Singapore. You know, and then when I read about your your book, Championing Orang Asli Rights, um, to be honest, I don't know much about this community because we don't have a, we don't have such a community in Singapore. So can you tell me a little bit more about the Orang Aslis in Malaysia and why exactly they are being treated as second-rate citizens? Um... Unfortunately, in Malaysia, it's, it's still a, very much a huge struggle between them and the government. So um, they are always placed, you know, second or third uh, when it comes to basic rights. For example, um, land rights. That has always been an issue, even with previous governments. So. Um, yeah, they've, they have dealt with uh, deforestation, logging, displacement, um, all of this is not new to them. And uh, on the good side, I mean, they are still upholding their culture and heritage, mm. um, even though, you know, you know, external factors such as you know, deforestation and de- displacement happen, uh, they still um, stay true to their culture and their history and their indigenous knowledge, mm. which is uh, the most important part of uh, this book because I try to keep their narrative um, to remain across the book now. It's, it, because we are learning from them and not them learning from us. So, mm-hmm. um, honestly, there are so much that we can learn from them. And yeah, it's, it's quite unfortunate that we're still, we're still protesting, we're still fighting, you know, against all this um, injustice and development efforts. And yeah. It's mm. it's <laughs> it's sad. Yeah. But, um to see that there are so many people that are uh having more awareness and championing them is something to be hopeful for. Mm. Yep. And why is it that it is such a personal mission for you? You know, is it because you have had um, you know, friends from this community that makes you want to champion for their rights, or was it something that you read about? Um, you know, like growing up, I, I guess you can understand, like growing up as a majority in this country, 
uh, we we really do not did not grow up knowing about indigenous people when they are just like our neighbors, <laughs> and um, it, it saddens me to to realize that fact. Uh, and uh, it, back in two thousand eighteen, I met an anthropologist uh, who is a lecturer in University of Malaya. Uh, she's Dr. Rusaslina Idrus. So she works with orang asli communities for like more than a decade. Uh, so she, she knew about my interest in food and plants. So she said that, you know, you should work with the orang asli communities. And that's where it sort of started. Uh, she brought me to a to a kampung in um, in the Greece Milan for a Christmas party uh, with the orang asli. <laughs> yeah, so so we celebrated Christmas with them, and the 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 ladies of the kampung brought us for a garden tour. So you know that that garden tour sort of like inspired me to to learn more about the plants that they use, the food that they eat. And that was the first starting point. And from there, you know, I met an indigenous artist who is also an activist. His name is uh, Shak Koyo. Um, he, was, he was nice enough to accept my request <laughs> to go to his kampong, to his hometown. Uh, you know, to get to know his family, to 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 go see the forest near his house. Um, yeah, and it it just sort of grew from there, and I met more indigenous um people in the area where I stay. Uh, and just learn to forage with them, um, learn to cook with them, and then. Obviously, issues like land grabs and deforestation, they, they crop up in our convers uh, my conversations with them. So it's, it's hard not to bring up these issues in the work that I do. Even though it's just about plants and food, uh, yeah, it, it's still like very inextricably linked with their culture, with their heritage, and their beliefs. So that's why, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard not to talk about it and uh, discuss about it. Mm. You know? yeah. I think just now you said something that I find very interesting. You know, you talked about being in a majority, in, uh, mm. I mean, belonging to the majority community in your country. Um, that's why you know, you feel a sense of privilege and you want to do something. Um, but I feel that a lot of people who are in the majority, they, they don't really have that sensitivity or the empathy to see what, what is wrong. Uh, speaking from experience, um, living in Singapore, even though I was, you know, part of the majority population, you don't really recognize racism, you, you know, or, or discrimination because they can be very subtle yeah you know I mean? yep, and um, for me it was when i moved abroad so now i'm based in australia 
And it was, you know, understanding how it's like to be a minority, you know, and realizing that, oh, racism doesn't have to be someone saying, you know, Ohio to you when you're not Japanese. You know, it can be more subtle and sometimes the subtle racism can be more hurtful. So I think that kind of shaped my perspective on, you know, being minority in a country. So for you, what was it that really helped you gain an empathy for these people? Uh, it's all, to me, it's all about communication mm. and to, to gain a sense of respect. Uh, no, I mean, it's to respect their views, their positions in, in their own community because, um, yeah, I really like try my best to to understand the struggle and to like not be to not be inferior. Sorry, not to be superior mm. and not to make them feel inferior in this kind of work that I'm doing. Because um like you said, there's so many layers of sensitivity and uh I that I have to be really careful with um, mm. because I'm I'm a non orang actually. I can never put myself in their shoes and um, whatever that they, they are facing we may never we may never relate to it. Mm. But um, I try my best to to communicate with them, uh, you know, to keep their narratives to remain like across uh, throughout the book. Um, mm. It's it's like them telling the story themselves, and uh, to keep their indigenous names of the plots, for example, instead of using scientific names uh, to be highlighted in the book. So I thought this is a good opportunity to highlight their language in mm. the book. What would you say is the mission of the book? At first, it was uh, to explore diversity of food. And when I say food, it's not just plants or cooking. It's other communities' way of approaching food and how they respect uh, things that they grow in their farms in their forest so these things are just so um, connected to each other and uh, i guess for me i wanted to i wanted them to tell people that uh, there are other ways to be sustainable (laughs) (laughs) to be respectful to our nature to to yeah there, there are so many other food that exist other than those that are available in the supermarket for example you know that those that are already packaged already sealed so these are the plants and food that have existed since time immemorial <laughs> yeah and we have we yeah we tend to overlook that and it's time to to revisit that part. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, you mentioned the word sustainable. And I feel mm-hmm. that sustainability is something that we are all trying to work towards in our daily lives. So can you tell me what you learned from the Orang Aslis uh, with respect to being more sustainable? Um, when I was foraging with them, they, they really emphasized on not taking more than we should. So this is to allow that the plants or trees to grow, to regrow. So that's, that's uh, sort of their idea of um, sustainability. And um, it's also a way of following the rhythm of the forest, uh, mm. you know, um, to cultivate plants in a certain season and, uh, and not to force them to grow throughout the year, you know, like, did they really understand what certain plants need, <laughs> mm. when they can grow? Uh, oh, wow. That's so fascinating yeah. because yeah, like, heard, yeah. We, we all think Sorry. that countries like Singapore or Malaysia, there are no seasons. But here you're telling me that there are seasons. Yeah, <laughs> there are seasons for these trees and plants. Uh, it was intriguing for me as well to know that because... Um, we have we have the raining season, we have the dry season. So certain plants on, can only grow during the dry season. Um, so for example, right now, you can actually find a lot of really beautiful flowering plants in the forest because it's really dry right now. Um, in terms of edibles, um, there are also certain plants for example, there's this plant called down sumomo. It's 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 like the turmeric leaf, like the kunyit. Mm. Uh, so they use these leaves for alternatives to onions. Um, but it's really hard to find them. They really grow in really healthy forests, mm. like in really shady and um, damp forest floors so that's why like those things are really important to keep in mind because without a healthy forest you won't find these really interesting and amazing plants that they use for cooking Mm. Um, and what is orang asli cuisine like i've never tasted it and i've never seen documentation of it like how would you describe it to a lay person? Um, it's really hard to generalize their cuisine or food because uh, the people that I've met uh, from specific tribes, uh, they are the Tumuan and the Semai. So the Tumuan people are more familiar with... Um, Malay food, so they, they really like to to put in a lot of spice or chili. <coughs> so their food is more spicy. <laughs> mm. um, for the Semai, they are more accessible to the forest mm. uh, because they still some of them still live in the interior, yeah. and uh, they have more access to 
uh, rare plants such as daun semomo, um, daun kulim, uh, other like really foreign plants that are unfamiliar to our palate lah. Hmm. So they, they they really don't fry so much. Hmm. They don't fry food so much because perhaps uh this idea oil is not cooking oil is not uh, readily available in a certain area or um so they they rely on um water and fire so they either what do you call that uh, barbecue like a barbecue yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> I, I have that word in mind <laughs> like barbecue or uh robust what is robust boil yeah boil mm-hmm. so they either boil their food or they uh, barbecue mm. so before tasting their food what were some of your preconceived notions and did that change after trying their food uh i didn't have any preconceived uh expectation yeah, expectation or anything uh, i just went with it like yeah uh some some of the food are really um how do you say really foreign to me but some are quite familiar mm. um, there is one dish called ubi kike where they use cassava uh they it, it, it just goes through a lot of process they ferment it they dry it they fry it and it becomes like um quinoa kind of texture oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah they, they they really extracted the the carb the carbohydrate part of the cassava and that uh becomes their staple food instead of rice mm. so rice um perhaps it wasn't readily available as well um back in the day so they they sort of i guess they experimented with cassava and they came up with this uh, form of food as their staple uh, food yeah which well, is really interesting and i think in many ways this book can be considered as an act of activism almost right um did you ever imagine that you being an artist could could help bring forth some form of uh, good in society definitely yeah yeah i i believe that yeah art can be anything you want it to be um and i never in a million years i thought i could come up with this book as uh, as my form of art and also like you said a form of activism and mm-hmm. a channel to to voice their culture to voice their heritage um, even though it's just plants and food but it, 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 i hope it's more than that yeah but it's great <laughs> it's great because yeah. you know i feel that when i was growing up i always saw that you know certain professions were like could bring about more social good than others like nurses doctors you know lawyers firefighters 
But, um, you know, now as I grow older and, you know, as I, I do more work on, so, uh, on social media or Singapore noodles, then I see that actually, you know, being an artist or being creative, being a creative, it really is a platform for you to, um, to do all these kind of things. And it's really what yeah. you're trying to, right? Yeah, it's, it has grown and there's so many avenues that you can, you can tap into. And I guess it's just, you know, whether you want to do it or not. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what is next for you? What is your next project? Um, definitely more um, works pertaining to the same subject. Because to be honest, this is like a tip of an iceberg. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's actually a really small amount of research. And there are so many more plants and food that we have not that we have yet to cover and um, yeah I hope to just expand on this subject especially food um, indigenous food and indigenous plants very excited to see your work on paperweight and what you do in in the future thank you that wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. My guest on this show was Sharifa Nadira, who is the co-founder of Paperweight Studio and the author of Recalling Forgotten Tastes. Also, Singapore Noodles is releasing a quarterly food publication called Seasonings, which gives you an insider's view into the festivals that we celebrate in Singapore. The pre-orders for our first issue on Hari Raya is currently open. You can go to sgpnoodles.com and purchase a copy under the shop section of the website. Thank you so much for listening to the show and I'll catch you all soon.